could But I reckon, ooh, there it is. It's lovely to It's lovely. If Brad ever invites you to his house and invites you for a fire, don't do it. It'd burn stuff down for sure. Yeah, so we went down to the Gold Coast and having worked at a church like Springwood where we had 40, 50 teenagers and going to a church and we rock up for the first Sabbath and we went to Senior Sabbath School twice uh, in five years and we rocked up to Senior Sabbath School and there were five children in the whole church. And I thought to myself, wow. <laughs> Why, did, did I do something wrong? Does George not like me? And the good thing was we turned up with our three kids. So we expanded the kids' vision by 60% on the first Sabbath. It was incredible. And we invited two friends who lived at Carrara. And they had two kids. We doubled children's division on the first Sabbath there. And today, uh, they're putting on a big kids' program at the church we attend. And there'll be 100 kids there today. And I want to tell you that what you guys are doing at your church and encouraging your children with Think Orange, etc., etc., is the way to go. It's an absolute blessing and it works. And I uh, just want to keep encouraging you to do it. Let's, let's have a word of prayer. And uh, it's a weird one because it's Father's Day, but we're going to jump into a topic on Series 3, Breathing Room, which has to do with dollars and cents. So we'll check that out in a minute. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for being our God. You are a great big God. And uh, you are our Father, and you're a good Father. And Lord, today, as we spend some time in your Word, I pray that you bless us, that you open our minds, and that as we look into the Scripture, we're challenged to actually become better stewards and better financial planners of our own money. Lord, uh, please be with us now. 
Amen. Did you know that you might have to lower your standard of living to increase your quality of life? When I, when I heard that statement the first time, I thought to myself, you might have to lower your standard of living to increase your quality of life. Now, friends, I want to tell you that in the midst of my pastoring journey, I took a few years out and went and did marketing and advertising at QUT, and then I worked in that industry for a couple of years. And that statement is so different to what I actually learned going to QUT and doing my master's in marketing and advertising. Because marketing and advertising, it is all about finding out what consumers want or finding out how to make a consumer choose something even if they don't want it. You know, it's an absolute fact that in marketing companies, the biggest employer of psychologists in Australia are marketing and advertising firms. Did you know that? And the reason they are is because when people go through the course of psychology, they are learning about what makes the human mind choose what it chooses. So in marketing and advertising, it's a very, very close choice with psychology because it is all about getting people to choose. Now, one of the problems that we have in society is that we have been conned. We've been conned by the devil and we've been conned by our own desires to have more. So the idea of, did you know that you might have to lower your standard of living to increase your quality of life? Well, it sounds a little out there. I'm going to explore that with you this morning. I want to tell you to start off with, there is a big difference between your standard of living and your quality of life. Let me give you a definition. Standard of living generally refers to the level of wealth, comfort, material goods and necessity available to a certain socioeconomic class in a certain geographical area. When I read that, I went, huh. But it's true. If you can attain a better job with a better income, then obviously you're going to have a more successful life. The stresses that are on you right now financially will be gone. It'll be completely gone. So thus, we as human beings in the Western world, we will clamor, we will cling, we will grab whatever advantage we can to actually climb the ladder that society's put out there in front of us. It's the carrot that's dangling. Quality of life. It's the freedom of movement. It's the freedom of choice. It's the freedom for you to be who you are. It gives you the rights that you have. And it allows you to have time and it allows you to enjoy relationships. That's what the quality of life is about. Most of us here, if we had five minutes to sit in little groups and say to ourselves, what exactly do you want in life? I'm sure that we could all say, Look, put your hand up if you'd like a little bit more time. Come on. Those of you who haven't put your hands up, I know they're up there somewhere. How many of you would like more money in your income? As a pastor, I just put mine straight up. That's terrible. Um, how many of you would like um, 
to spend more time with your kids. If you don't have kids, <laughs> we won't get there yet. How many of you would like to actually spend more time with your friends? And I don't mean on Facebook. I don't mean on your phone. I mean actually like physically together sometime. All the ones under about 20 are going, why would you do that? You know, Cara and I work with high school ministry. Now I'm doing it in the conference, but prior to that, we were doing it at our church. And we asked them one day, so why are you so fascinated with your phones, SMSing? Why don't you, like for us, it was an honor to pick up the phone and do this thing and, and then have a big long cord and try and hide somewhere for some privacy, which for, for in our house was the pantry, um, and you shut the door so you could chat. Now, but when we asked our teenagers at our church, why do you SMS and Instagram and do all the other stuff they do? They said, well, it's so much easier. You get bored chatting with them, you can just switch off. I'm telling you, that's not quality of life, but that's what our kids are growing up to become, which is really super scary. In society, we're constantly bombarded with communication that says that the standard of living and the quality of life are the one thing. I want to show you today that that is a big load of rubbish. Because when we talk about creating breathing room in our lives, we need to actually be very, very strategic and actually put some plans in place to make it happen. Too many of us, as Christians and as non-Christians, we are spending our whole lives watching our income perhaps go up, and our spending, perhaps heading upwards as well. And we delete any breathing room that we might have. Marketing advertising drive this point. You know, McDonald's is one of the... I love just listening to them. Because everything's about upsizing. Do you want this with that? you want that with that? If I wanted it, I'd ask. Some of us can testify to the fact that we were just as happy working on a salary $30,000 less than what we are today having a career and working. The difference is we have actually increased our toys and perhaps even our debt levels to the point that when I finished school, I went straight out to work at Sanitarium, which was the thing to do in Kurumbong, because it was either Sanitarium or work at the old people's home. That was pretty much it. There was not many other job choices. So, but I want to tell you that I was just as happy on that level of income as that I was perhaps working in marketing or perhaps what I'm working today as a minister. You can raise your standard of living and yet still have a poor quality of life. You can increase your wage and still have a poor quality of life. What are some of the definitions of this poor quality of life? I can see you in your mind just start ticking a few off. We work longer hours. Takes longer to get to work. Spend less time with family and friends and significant others. Earn more money, but we have less time to enjoy our toys and those people who matter to us most. One of the great points in relation to the society we live in today is Christians and non-Christians. 
is that debt is part of our everyday living. I want to tell you a little story about my grandfather. Grew up just a little bit down from Canberra, a little country town called Young. Not too far from there. And met my grandma, same country town. But I want to tell you something about my grandfather. When it came to buying something, they never bought it unless they had the money. That included a home. Most of us sitting here today going, are you serious? Like, North Lakes is so expensive. But you imagine saving up enough money to buy a home with cash. You know, I'd, I'd say to my granddad, wow, you had a good savings plan, granddad. But I want to tell you a little secret that my granddad had. Discipline. Did you get that word? He had discipline. My grandfather had taught his son so well that when one of my uncles turned up to buy a brand new little Morris Minor from the dealership in Young, the owner of the place said, no, you can't afford that. And he said, I've got the cash in my pocket. I've been saving up with discipline as an 18-year-old. I've been working for two years and I've been saving most of my money so that I could buy this brand new car with discipline. With discipline. Did you know that today, compared to 1988, Australians are now four times more in debt than they were in 1988? Not just because our homes have got more expensive, but because at some point in time, in about 1995, we used to be able to actually say that our combined incomes in a household, we could pay off our debt in about 12 months. And in 1995, it actually crossed the line. And today, the average debt, household debt in Australia is $245,000. But in 1988, it was $60,000. Our disposable income is about 135000 This is just an average. $135,000, but our debt. So our disposable income has tripled since 1988. Disposable debt, sorry, from 64 to 185% of what we earn each year. This in turn has made a dirty word called debt. More than 90% of Australians have household debt. And the majority of it, is either trying to buy an investment property or buying your first home. 90% of our debt. So friends, don't confuse standard of living with quality of life. What does God need from you? We've been studying with our teens down at the Gold Coast about this very thing. In relation to our finances, what does God require of you? And the thing that we've been able to establish is, number one, God owns everything. Our role is to manage the money that God has given us. Does money equal happiness? Would you rather have an awesome marriage or relationship with your friends or a big income and lots of new stuff? To be a Christian, we need to listen to the secret of the message that I want to share with you now. The spiritual point number one is this, 
you were living on a percentage of your income. You don't think about it. When we think about what our plan is each day with our income, often we don't think about it. It's just a matter of living from pay to pay, or it's just a matter of living from day to day. The bills come, we pay for them, they send us lovely little credit card things, they they just want to give you one, or increase your limit because you've been such a good customer. So we grab it, and all of a sudden, our debt begins to pile up more and more. Max Licardo states that he did a little bit of a survey, and he asked people this, if the fairy godmother could just come along, we don't believe in them, but, but, if, but if they could come along, and they said to you, how much more money would you need in your income each week to make you happy? How much would it be? The average came back at 30%. If you're on $20,000 a year, well, let's increase that by 30%. If you're on $50,000, let us increase it by 30%. And most people said to Max Licardo, then I'd be happy. I I would have a lifestyle that would be in sync with the quality of life that I would want. You felt the same way when you made a lot less. Most of us in life go around just like this closet that I brought. That's a good closet. I use this for big camp, so it's up here early. But in this closet, it's just jam-packed with... Stuff. I couldn't even fit my football jersey in there, and I couldn't even fit Caro's onesie in there. But the reality is, it's just there's no room for more stuff. It's just jam packed in there, and the pressures that that actually brings when I just try and apply one more jacket in there is it's too difficult. It's too difficult. And the reality is, in our society today, we have no room to breathe. Now, I've got a little little graph that I want to show you. Now, when we have a look, most of us, and, and you're looking at the screen up there, but most of us, you know, down here we have time and up here we have money, and over the years, our time is sort of running out, and our, and our money, our income is sort of gradually increasing, and maybe it's not, but, you know, just, just for this exercise, we're going to make it increase a little bit. And, and that space in between is actually our breathing room. Now, the cool thing about the breathing room, and this is a God principle, I, I was amazed when Cara and I started studying about money, that the Bible talks about money over 700 times. Over 700 times. It's significant. It talks more about money than many of the other subjects that we actually preach about. Because God knew that we as human beings would need to be able to manage this aspect of our lives so that we could actually be free, so that we could actually enjoy our families and our friends, so that we could actually push away some of the stresses of life. And when we look up here, friends, that breathing room is an absolute must. It's a positive. It's something we all need. It's something we desire. It actually creates a part of our lives that actually says, I don't feel pressure. I don't feel stress. I actually feel like I can breathe. 
That breathing room is absolutely, absolutely important to our Christian walk. It means that we have room to save. It means we have room to pay our tithe. Because remembering, God just asks us to manage His money. He doesn't require 90%, He just asks for 10 but if we have no breathing room, what's going to go? We're going to pay the debts. There's going to be no room for us to pay tithe. There's going to be no room for us to be good stewards. When someone needs a hand or perhaps there's a ministry at your church you want to invest into, you're going to say, we would love to, but we've got no breathing room. Breathing room allows us to give. Breathing room allows us to have a full life. And to pay any of the bills without the stress of worrying that there's not enough cash to cover it. Breathing room allows us to have the quality of life that God actually wants and desires for each of our lives. When you have a standard of living, you sleep better. You have better relationships. When you're at work, you work better. You become more generous with your time and with your finances. You think better. Makes no sense, but, you know, no English teachers here, I hope. You drive slower. Do any of you out there need to drive slower? You would save more money if you drove slower. Trust me. I have some issues with that at the moment. You have prayer more often. You give bigger and better gifts to those people you love and that you care for. You become more productive because you're in the mindset, in the breathing space of what God designed you and I to be. You should do whatever it takes legally to get to that point of the breathing room. How many of you want breathing room? Come on, help me out here. I promise the person next to you won't tickle you. How many of you want breathing room? I know I, I do. So what do we need to squeeze out of our lives? Now, if we can put in the next graph. The problem with society is this is actually what the reality is for many, many people living here in Australia. Perhaps for you as well. And that... We live from day to day because there is no breathing room. So what we do is the income that comes in covers what we need in life. Perhaps it's the debt of a car or a house, credit card, people you owe money to. So all of a sudden, there's absolutely no breathing room. What do we become as Christians? We become stressed. We become worried about, we can't sleep because we're just worried about how am I going to pay the rates, the school fees, I've got to pay for university, I, got, I can't afford to go out with my friends tonight. I, this is what the devil wants. And even worse than this, there's another graph which we didn't put in there, is where our spending overtakes our income and we just continually spiral further and further and further into debt. That's what the devil wants. Especially for Christians. 
He especially wants Christians to be able to say, God, where are you? You don't care. You know I can't pay this bill. And we spiral further and further down the way the devil wants us. The problem with living like this is you'll always have a life run by financial people. The bank, whoever else you owe money to. These people haven't got nice, happy faces like Pastor Neil or Simo or Murray. These are people that just sit behind their desk and go, send, they need to pay their bill, they're a bit late, Uh, they can't pay it, we repossess. These people don't care about you. And there's nothing wrong with banks and people that work in banks. Nothing wrong with it. What's wrong is the choices that we're making. The choices we're making to go further and further into debt. You can't fund your dreams. You can't fund your kids' dreams. Your dreams are stopped by your financial decisions to debt. Living like this is against what Jesus wants for you and for me. I'd like to turn in the Bible to the parable of the shrewd manager. Just like the name of it, he's a shrewd manager. In Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. You've got time, open your Bibles if you've got one. I would open mine, but it's sitting back there. (laughs) I brought the wrong book. So we'll read it off the screen together. Yeah, there we go. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Verse 2. So he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig (laughs) and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, that's a lot. He replied, the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450 gallons of olive oil. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I'm reading this and I'm going, Jesus, what are you talking about? Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if anyone, sorry, if you have been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Verse 13, very powerful passage. No one can serve what? That's really significant. 
No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both, help me, God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is a parable that I get because in society, we're always talking about how to create wealth and how to make ourselves do better in life. But here, Jesus is actually saying, hey, I commend the shrewd manager. I don't commend his actions, but I commend that he, at least he was, he was trying to work through his problems. But the reality is in this passage, one of the key parts is you cannot serve two masters. And the masters here, you cannot serve God or money. God does not say money is evil. He doesn't. The Bible does not say that money is evil. But God does say that when money becomes our stress, tipping point, where we can't breathe anymore, it becomes an evil for your life. What master do we serve? Two weeks ago, who presented number one? Was it Murray? Uh, two weeks ago, can anyone remember who preached? Murray, excellent. I was guessing. Two weeks ago when Murray preached, he would have spoken about an aspect which says, do not worry. Do not worry. Now, when debt is all around us, we can do nothing but worry. Of course, we do nothing but worry. I know how it feels. I've been there. Are you torn between the master of God who wants to take the worry away from you or the master of money that will allow the worry to just build up piece by piece? Breathing room. The Bible says don't worry. How can we do this when we try to serve two masters? You cannot do it. The mismanagement slows us down serving God. You need breathing room spiritually. Friends, you need it financially. And you need it relationally. If you want to have a full life that God has given each one of us to have. Now, I want to tell you, friends, that in life, you know when people get up and say, if you follow these steps, um, you know, it's like if you want to have steps to a bikini body within 10 weeks, you've got to do this. Not that I've ever read that. Um, if you want to be fit by summer, yeah, I'd like to do that. They give you all these steps. But the reality is in life, how many of us live by just steps? I don't think we do. I think our life is quite fluent. I think it, it, it's, it's like water and that it just sort of comes together and it happens. But I want to tell you that there are some points... <laughs> that can help us to discover that breathing room. If we can put up that slide one more time, Clayton, of the, the breathing room. The first thing we need to do is decide. You have to. 
There's been many times in my life that Cara, the lady that God gave me, has had to remind me that the goals that we're setting for 2017 or 2016, you can't set them in April of 2016. You need to actually set them the year before so you know what you're working to achieve. She's right. For you to actually set a direction, you need to decide what you want. Do you want to continue to serve the master of debt or do you want to consider perhaps deciding to follow God's way? To decide to follow God's way, we're going to need to take a little bit of my granddad on. We're going to need to be disciplined with our money. Discipline is how we have a better quality of life. You have to get totally frustrated and upset to stop and choose which direction you're going to follow. You need to stop and make definitive directives to give you some space between your income and your spending. A lot of you young people that are sitting up there, praise the Lord you're here at this church. I just want to tell you, if you can learn from people like us that have made mistakes in life, if you earn $50 at McDonald's or wherever you earn it, you don't need to spend $50. One of the best lessons I ever learned was from a gentleman who's now a pastor down at Reedy Creek, Kellyville Church. I was an intern, 24, 25, still trying to work out the whole money thing. And he got up and he preached and he spoke about a principle called 10-10-80. And 10 uh, is a principle that works because what it means is God has given us the ability to manage our money. We don't own it. God owns it. He just asks us to manage it. 10% of it goes straight to God. It's His. The Bible teaches us that clearly. It's not an old person's thing. It is a thing that will go from generation to generation until Jesus returns. 10% is God's. That 10% giving back tithe actually teaches me discipline. It's one of the greatest tools that you can use to actually teach you to be a good money manager. You can't learn it from the thousand books you can buy about money management, but the Bible teaches you 10%. Be disciplined and put it to God and say, God, this is yours, this isn't mine. I've got 90% to live with. What David taught me at Kellyville was that you take 10 more percent and you put it into saving. That 10% is the breathing room of your life You've got to pick what percentage that's going to be for you as a family. Perhaps you're saying 10% savings, yes, but we have a bigger plan that we want to do down the track as a family or as a couple or going to get married or whatever it is. I, I can tell you now that the breathing room is going to be bigger than 10% of saving. And the other 80% is what we use to live with in life. For $50 a week, you're talking about $40 that you're going to use to live your life. Young people, parents, couples, single people, whatever that is for you, it's working it out and it's being disciplined. It's following the example of some of those really old Australians, my grandparents, that when they bought things, they'd actually saved up, they paid for it in cash. Otherwise, they didn't get it. The second thing is, to set your breathing room goal, which we've talked about just briefly there. Whatever that percentage is, 
Set it for yourself because that is the thing that is going to allow you to have freedom as a Christian. Jesus wants you to have that breathing room. So you're going to need to be strategic and you need, you're going to need to say to yourself, how much are we putting aside for our breathing room? That's the stuff that doesn't just go, oh, we just use it. That's the stuff that's sitting there going, that's to buy a car one day. That's for the family holiday. That's to buy that new pair of shoes. But it's that breathing room that you want to have set up. Number three is spy on your money. I want to tell you that in life, how many of you see big pictures? You're really good at seeing the big picture. How many of you, come on, put your hand up. You just sort of like see this big picture, but you forget about all the little things that are happening around you. Am I the only one? Okay, there's two of us. Three. Thanks, Daryl, for your honesty. There's four over here. And there was not one lady. That's probably true. (laughs) Because if there's one thing we can learn from ladies is that not all ladies, some ladies, most probably, is how you girls put those lists together. Like, I don't know where the pen and paper came from, but you always seem to have it. Now you've got your iPhone, you just get like big list, do this. I'm married to someone who does that, so in our home, the spying on the money is not done by me. Um, I'm the guy that goes, so Cara, what's the big picture? You know, wh- you know, what's the big picture? What's the bottom line? And Cara's like, not the bottom line. Why did you spend $6 at Woolworths on the 24th of August at 3 o'clock? I can't remember. Maybe I was hungry. I I don't know. But Cara will actually write it down. And I want to tell you that we need to have a little bit of that in our lives. We need to spy on what we're spending. To create a good habit, They say you need to do it for three months, so why not try it for three months just to see? You'll be surprised how much um, some people might spend at Woolworths on the 24th of August at four o'clock. You know, spy on your money. Do it for three months and see how you go. The last two points of these, cut spending. You know, if, if we look at If we look at where most Australians are, we actually have our spending and our income, the lines right next to each other. So for us to create any breathing, we've actually got to say to ourselves, what needs to go? I want to tell you you straight off, tithe doesn't need to go. That's God's. That's not for you and I to choose. That's God's. Well, I'm not going to pay any offering because tonight we're going to Maccas. Bad choice, but... But the reality is, if you appreciate God's community, Maccas might have to go tonight. Okay, we still haven't quite worked this out. And as we start to go through it piece by piece, we start to realize that perhaps we don't need to buy the brand new car that we can't quite afford. But we can afford the 1985 Commodore. There's heaps of parts for them. And you'll, they're cheap to fix. But the reality is, you can find, you can find the breathing room if you actually look for it. The last point is this, retire, develop a debt retirement plan. Listen to this. The chief competitor for your heart is not the devil. The chief competitor for your heart is not the devil, it's 
your love for stuff. The devil doesn't control what you need to go and buy. We do. You do and I do. The devil's there to play whatever trick he can on us. And that's why in the Bible, the Word of God, Jesus and the writers in the Scripture talk about money so much because they know that it is one of the traps that lead us Christians away from a relationship with God. I've been guilty of it. I can't blame the devil because I needed to buy that new shirt when I couldn't afford it. It's my choice. I've actually made that choice. And that's why it says you need to choose which master that you serve. David Ramsey, uh, when, when I was preparing for the talk, I was listening to Andrew Stanley and listening to his talk. And then all of a sudden, Dave Ramsey came up and I went, huh, I know him. You know, Cara and I have been using a series uh, with our kids down at the Gold Coast called Generational Change, which is about creating a better financial future for your kids. This is for teenagers, high school kids. And Dave Ramsey, her dad, is one of the most influential, uh, not only Christians, one of the most influential men in the US in relation to how to reduce debt. Instead of me rambling on anymore, let's enjoy what Dave Ramsey has to say for about three minutes. Thank you. Are you starting off the new year in debt? We're on your side giving you some tips on how you can bail yourself out. Nine on your side's consumer reporter John Matteris has some hints on what you should and shouldn't do if you want to get on track. Now that it's the new year, how big is your holiday shopping hangover? If you're like a lot of tri-staters, you're probably facing more than $1,000 in December bills alone. So how can you chip away at your debt for 2015? Well, we decided to revisit our friend Dave Ramsey for some New Year's tips for getting out of debt. Everyone can start fresh. Everyone where you are. The man is a superstar to millions of people who are deep in debt. Anyone in America today can get out of debt. Ramsey, with his daughter Rachel at his side, now preaches what he learned in those dark days. The biggest thing about getting out of debt is really getting angry about it. You've got to get ticked off about living your life in such a way that you're going to retire broke and that you work too hard to be this broke. But Ramsey says his plan can help. He shared with me nine tips or baby steps for getting out of debt. Tip number one is the most painful. Stop shopping and sell what you don't need. You've got to get in attack mode. You've got to sell so much stuff the kids think they're next. Tip two, cut up the credit cards. Most people struggle with credit cards. Very few people handle them well. And so I just don't suggest them. He says a debit card or plain old cash will make you think twice about every purchase. When you start spending real cash, you feel it. Ouch. I mean, if you carry Uncle Benjamin Franklin around a little while, he becomes part of the family. And then you put him out for adoption, it hurts. Tip three, skip the big car loan. Buy only as much car as you can afford. I'd ride a bicycle before I'd have a car payment. The average car payment in North America right now is $478 over 84 months. If you invest that from age 30 to age 70 instead of paying a car payment, you'd have $5.6 million. Tip four, stash away some cash for emergencies. You save $1,000 your starter emergency fund, 
and that's really kind of getting started. Five, pay off those credit cards, starting with the one with the highest interest rate first. Once you pay off your cards, come tips six, seven, and eight, save for the kids' college, try to pay off your mortgage in 15 years, and give some money to charity. Many of his 8 million followers may not get that far, but Ramsey gives them a path. And more importantly, the final tip he shares is to have hope that things will get better. When people have lost their hope, they've lost their energy. When they think the only light at the end of the tunnel is an oncoming train, they just don't believe. Finally, Ramsey says he's not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. He says more than one-third of resolutions are broken by late January. He says instead, set goals for 2015 a little bit at a time. You can read much more of my interview with Dave Ramsey on WCPO.com so you don't waste your money. I'm John Matarese, 9 on your side. Isn't that reporter the quirkiest guy you've ever heard? In conclusion, I want to say, friends, we cannot serve two masters. We need to choose which one we're going to serve. If you want a better quality of life, then we need to make sure that we are well and truly living within our means. We need to ensure that our spending does not exceed our income. We need to plan and we need to be disciplined in making sure that my life is going to be what my Lord and Saviour Jesus has intended it to be. Friends, this is why life is better with a little breathing room. I think we're going to stand and sing our last song. It's going to be a cappella. <laughs> 